You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is For Such a Time as This, Episode 5, with Daniel Pell. Good evening and thank you for coming to our presentation tonight entitled Faith That Will Be Remembered. This is our second part in this presentation series. Well, actually, it's not our second part in the entire presentation series, but for this particular um, series we are doing, uh, we have entitled it For this Such a Time as This. Yesterday we talked about faith that will be remembered, which was our first part in our study on the book of Romans, and tonight we're going to look at the second part in the study on the book of Romans. And I'm very excited about this study. Yesterday we looked at the first four chapters in the book of Romans. We uh, took a bird's perspective of that book and we looked at uh, some of the powerful teachings that we find in those chapters of the book of Romans. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. And before we get into our material tonight, I would like to invite you to have a word of prayer together with me as we invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before you. We thank you that we can commit ourselves to you this evening. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be with us, that you will guide us in our study, and that you will lead us into your truth. And I pray that you will use me as your mouthpiece to communicate this message tonight. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Faith that will be remembered. Yesterday we looked at Romans chapter 1 that explains to us in such a powerful way what the gospel really is. The gospel is putting the character of God on display. It is the character of God, the righteousness of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And really when we have that gospel put on display in the world, there is really no excuse God has not only put himself on display in the gospel, but also through creation. We looked at that yesterday. Romans chapter 1 talks about the gospel. It talks about creation. It talks about how God has manifested and revealed himself to all humanity. And really, in the end, there is no excuse. And the theme of of, of, of Romans chapter 1 encapsulates the gospel that is an experience that each of us must embrace. And when we embrace that experience, we will be separated from this world. We will come out of darkness and step into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2 continues the theme of what it means to be without excuse. And, and Paul explains that the Jews that boasted in their uh, in their significant in the significance of them being sons and daughters of Abraham really had nothing to boast in because when you really look at their lives they were none better than the Gentiles around them and so the boast that they made um, was was not legitimate and the message in Romans chapter 2 that is clearly communicated is that we are all um, in a deplorable and miserable condition without the saving power of Jesus Christ In chapter 3 of the book of Romans, and I'm just bringing you now through a little bit of what we covered yesterday so that we can continue our study tonight. In chapter 3, the theme is even further developed, and Paul says that all are are unrighteous, all have have, have come to, uh, are are in this situation, in this uh, deplorable condition without the saving grace of Christ. As a matter of fact, I want to read in chapter 3 together with you Uh, some of these words because they are so serious they are so um, to the point they point out our very spiritual nature our spiritual condition without the power of Christ manifest in our lives and if you look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 we just want to read a couple of verses here so that we can uh, re-look at what we covered yesterday before we get into the uh, material of chapter 5 Chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become 
to, uh, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then it goes on to even describe the condition that we are all in. But praise God, we're not left in that condition. In Romans chapter 3, Paul also presents the solution for every single person. And we read about that in verse 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for the law is the knowledge of sin. We know that with the law, it's like a mirror. We look in it and we realize our own condition. But what do we do then with that condition? Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Sorry, for there is no difference. And so what we are seeing in this text is how Paul is bringing out the righteousness of God, the character of God, and where is it going to be put on display? In those that are in Christ Jesus, those that have Christ's character revealed in them. And this is a choice. We decide to surrender our hearts to him, and he starts working his works within us. We have a living example of that in chapter 4, and we talked about this yesterday of Abram, the example of Abram, and how Abram was justified by believing the promises of God. We we also looked yesterday at how this happened in, in, in a uh, not at once. It, it was a journey for him. As a matter of fact, first he believed that he had to help God in fulfilling the promises of God, and he utterly failed. But he came to the position, he came to the, to the point in his life that he realized that he had to fully surrender himself so that God could do a work in his life. And so we, with these examples, with this build-up, we come to chapter 5, and that's where we want to carry on tonight as we look at our second part in this presentation, faith that will be remembered. Take a look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. We talked about that earlier. We have, and, and, and that results in a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We uh, looked at that text in our last presentation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which talks about the reconciliation that Christ has wrought uh, for humanity. Maybe we should just go back to that text for a moment because it really connects with the, the theme of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 introduces us to this peace that we can enter into. It is a peace with God, and that peace comes about by the reconciliation that Christ has wrought in behalf of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read in verse 17 the following. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us, us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so there's this word that repeats itself several times in this passage. That is the word reconciliation. It means becoming one again. We have been separated from God through sin. When you look at the story from Genesis to Revelation, it is the story of reconciliation. It is a, sto it is a story of humanity separated from God through sin, but it's also the story of Christ coming, giving his life, and bringing us back to God, bringing us back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And so it is through Jesus Christ that this reconciliation can take place. It is through Jesus Christ that we can enter into this peace that Romans chapter 5 is talking about. Now, Romans chapter 5 talks about this transition of the Christian by becoming part of an entire new family. And that family is the family that is... <laughs> 
rooted and grounded in the person Jesus Christ. We become one with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to Romans chapter 5, it is an interesting list of of, of comparisons between being part of the family of Adam, a descendant of Adam, which we all are by nature, and then becoming part by choice of the family of Christ. And take notice of the uh, distinctive um, parallels and contrasts that are made here in Romans chapter 5. If you go down to verse, nine, uh, verse 12, take a, li- take a look at the list here, as it is mentioned, as, as, as Paul um, describes the difference between being part of Adam, a descendant of Adam, or stepping into Christ and being part of a, this new family that uh, Jesus has initiated. Um, let's read from verse 12 together. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. I hope you can follow along in your Bibles. We read the following, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So here we're talking about Adam, but look at how it continues. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So it's talking about what came through Adam, and then it's talking about what comes through Christ. Through Adam, we have sin that entered into the world. But through, and, and through sin came offense, and, 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 but through Jesus Christ, we have the gift of grace. And as you continue to read all the way till the end of the chapter, basically from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter to verse 21, you have this list of contrasts, comparisons and contrasts between Adam, uh, which we are natural descendants from, and Jesus Christ. Uh, in these contrasts, the following is mentioned. What resulted from the fall of Adam? It mentions disobedience. It mentions sin. It mentions death, offense, judgment, condemnation. But then when you look at what comes through Jesus Christ, we read about grace, justification, righteousness, obedience, eternal life. So in Scripture, Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. He steps in the place of Adam and he introduces a whole new, a whole new view of what we can experience, a whole new salvation. Now, this salvation that we can step into through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, we can do by choice. We decide to surrender our lives to him and he does a work in us. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, Romans chapter 5 and you go to the very end of the chapter, look at how it ends here in verse 20 and 21. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have eternal life. And we can enter into a new family, and that is the family of Christ. As a matter of fact, there's such an encouraging passage in the New Testament about that very um, idea of you and I becoming part of the family of God. If you keep your finger in Romans, because we'll come back there in just a moment, and you turn to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, take notice of how Paul in the book of Galatians pictures this experience of the believer. Galatians and chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, And take notice of verse 16, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, Now to Abram and to to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And then if you go on to the end of the chapter there, to verse 26, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is the promised seed of prophecy. 
And then we can become part of him. We can become the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. What, a, what an incredible promise that is given to us that by faith we can become sons and daughters of God. By faith we become sons and daughters of Abram. We become part of what we would call the spiritual Israel. It is an invitation to every single one of us. It is an invitation to you personally to step into that relationship with God. You see, the sins of this world, Christ took them upon himself. Through Jesus, we can be reconciled to the Heavenly Father, and we can be part of this new family. And so Romans chapter 5, if you turn back there, really reveals these two lineages, the lineage of Adam and what comes through Adam, and the lineage of Christ and what comes through Christ. Now, we are all born into this world as a descendant of Adam, which was the first human being, which through Adam, sin came into this world, and so we inherit this sinful nature. And so we grow up with this sinful nature, and yet we have a decision that we can make, and that decision is when the gospel is being revealed to us, we can decide to become part of Jesus Christ, become part of a new family to enter into this reconciliation, to enter into this salvation that has been wrought for us so that we can become partakers of the blessings that are listed here in Romans chapter 5. We can become partakers of these gifts that have been bestowed upon us from heaven. These gifts of grace, these gifts of justification, of righteousness, of obedience, of eternal life. It is a powerful, powerful invitation to step into that by becoming one with Jesus Christ. But of course, the question then is, how does this practically happen? How do I, as a natural descendant of Adam, with all, this, all the dispositions in me to, 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 to actually tend and bend towards evil, how can I step out of that and decide to become part of this new family and to step into this oneness with Jesus Christ and be a partaker of the gifts that are mentioned in chapter 5? The question is, how does that practically happen? Well, praise God, as we continue in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 and 7 gives us some very practical illustrations of how this happens in the Christian life. And so let us take a look at these illustrations. There are actually three of them. In chapter 6, we have two illustrations, and in chapter 7, we have another illustration of what it means to become one with Jesus Christ, what it means to enter into that family of God. In Romans chapter 6, we have the question that is asked there in verse 1. Take a look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. A question is asked, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul asks the question, we've been talking about grace that we receive from Jesus Christ, but that grace, is that just a covering grace? Is it just something that is outside of us? Is it just an experience that, that we are not really partakers of? Shall we just continue sinning that grace may abound? That's the question that Paul asks. But then he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. Actually, he repeats this question almost identical in verse 15. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. Almost the same question here. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he answers it in the very same way as he did in the beginning of the chapter. He says, certainly not. You can basically divide Romans chapter 6 into two parts. You have verse 1 to 14, and then you have verse 15 to 23. The first part is answering that first question, and then the almost identical uh, question is asked again, and then you have a second illustration, the second part of the chapter. Let us look at these two illustrations then about how grace really works in the life of the believer. Romans chapter 6, looking at verse 3, it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The illustration that is used here is the illustration of baptism. And baptism is a symbol of entering into the death of Christ and, of course, also experiencing not only the death of Christ but the resurrection of Christ. It is like a burial. You go under the water and your old life is buried away. You come up out of the water uh, to live a new life in Jesus Christ, just as Jesus Christ went into the grave but came out of the grave and is alive, so we die to self and we come up and we live for Christ. So baptism is symbolic of the teaching of what it means to die to self. Now that's not just something we do once in our lifetime. Uh, many of you might be baptized, maybe some of you aren't. Baptism is a symbol, is an outward symbol of dying to self. And yet when the Christian is baptized, that doesn't just mean that that's a one-time event. As a matter of fact, Paul says, I die daily. Now, what does he mean when, when he says, I die daily? It doesn't mean that he dies a literal death daily. That could certainly not be true. He's talking here about the death to self. He mentions that there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31. He says, I die daily. But what does that really mean? What does that experience mean of dying to self, which is symbolized by baptism? Well, let's look a little closer at that. Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, take notice what he said to his disciples. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, take notice what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 23 and 24. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus makes it very plain here in Luke chapter 9 that those that want to follow him, those that want to become disciples of him, they have to do something. They have to take up their cross voluntarily and follow him. Now that doesn't mean that they had to make uh, crosses of wood and put it on their shoulder and follow him. What this means is, again, the, symbolic, the same symbolic meaning that is also illustrated through baptism, and that is dying to self. We all know that a cross is an instrument uh, that, uh, th that leads to death. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the days that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Every time that they saw a person with a cross on their shoulders, they knew that person was going to die. Now, what Jesus is saying here, if you want to become my disciple, you need to take up a cross voluntarily. You, may, you need to make that decision and follow me. When we, in our Christian experience, take up that cross, what it means is we are dying to self. Just like baptism, we go under the water, we die to self, there's a burial, but we come up again and Christ lives in us. You see, Christ cannot live in us when self is still alive. When there is pride and selfishness, which we naturally receive through Adam, if that is dominant in us, Christ cannot live in our hearts. He cannot reign in us. Someone said, you know, uh, you can't serve two masters at a time, but you can serve one master at a time. So there are, there, there, two masters cannot be in us. There must be either self must die and Christ must reign, or self is alive and Christ cannot be part of us. And so that's why Paul says, uh, Paul uh, encourages the believers to enter into this experience of dying to self. Jesus himself invites the believers to enter into this experience. In another passage in John chapter 12 and verse 24, Jesus says the following. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Now, if any of you have a garden, you know what that is like. When you take that seed, there seems to be no life in that seed, but you put it in the ground, you cover it up. It's like a burial, right? You're burying that seed in the ground. And yet, soon enough, with, with, with the sun and the water, and, and the, a plant starts growing. It's every time a miracle of God. 
It's a miracle of God, but there must be a death first in order for life to take place. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul is using this very illustration, and he's using the illustration of baptism, but baptism is a one-time event for the Christian as they enter into a life with Jesus, as they enter into the family of God, but it's much deeper than just a one-time experience because the very illustration that baptism presents, the illustration of dying to self, is something that the Christian needs to experience every single day. Now, how does that happen? It happens by us making that choice to voluntarily pick up that cross and follow Jesus by allowing self to die. Now, we cannot do that in our own strength, just, that, just as much as a person cannot crucify themselves. Um, we must ask God to put death to self so that we can invite him to live in us. This is something that only God can do for us. As a matter of fact, in order to illustrate this a little bit better, turn with me to Galatians, the book of Galatians, and take notice of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Listen to the words of, again, the Apostle Paul here as he writes to the, to the church um, in Galatia, and he writes to the Galatians, and he says the following in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, something of importance for them living at that time, but also for us today. These words are, are, are just echoing to us today, and it says the following, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So now it's not me living any longer. It's Christ living in me. This is the experience that we are invited into on a daily basis. Now, when I thought about this, and I, and I was really trying to make this as practical as possible, and I thought to myself, is there any illustration, is there any story in the Bible where there was someone that was crucified with Christ? I mean, if you can ever find a story to illustrate these, these deep teachings, it made, makes it a lot easier. And I thought to myself, yes, there is indeed a person that was crucified with Christ, and that is the thief on the cross. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus was crucified there on the, on the hill of Calvary, he was not alone. There were two thieves on each side of him that were crucified with him. But there was something very different with the crucifixion of Jesus and the crucifixion of these two thieves. And the, that difference is very plain, and that is that Jesus voluntarily gave his life. But what about those two thieves? Were they voluntarily giving their lives to be crucified there? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, you know, they were wrestling in the hands of those that were putting them on that cross. It was not voluntarily for them. And yet, as they are on the cross and they look at Jesus, they started mocking him. The Bible says that both of the thieves in the beginning were mocking Jesus. But then one of those thieves his attitude changed. He looked at Jesus and something started happening in his heart. Something started happening in his mind. He looked at Jesus and in Jesus, he started seeing the Son of God. He started seeing in Jesus something special. He started realizing that Jesus had some peace that he did not have. They were all about to die, and yet he looked at Jesus and he could see the peace and serenity and, the, and, and just the character of Christ was, was now impressing his own heart and mind. And the story, you know the story, it's so powerful. He turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, that's powerful. Christ turns to the, to the thief and assures him that he will remember him. Now, this, this presentation is entitled, Faith That Will Be Remembered. The faith of that thief on the cross was remembered. Now, there's a lot that we could remember about that thief. There was a lot of people that were probably standing there uh, beholding this crucifixion that knew about the sins of that thief that was hanging there. 
And yet, when this thief came to the point of surrendering his heart to God, surrendering his heart to Christ, and totally giving himself to Jesus, that which will be remembered about that thief were those last words that he spoke to Christ. Now, as he was crucified there, a change happened in his heart. We can almost say that that thief died on that cross twice. First, he died the death to self as he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, remember me when thou comest into the kingdom. And after that, he died the literal death. The question for each one of us today is which death are we going to die first? That's the real question. We are all asked to voluntarily take up our cross and follow Jesus. We are all asked to be crucified with Christ. And because we have voluntarily taken up that cross, we also can voluntarily step down from that cross whenever we wish. Now think about that. When Christ was crucified there on Calvary, the uh, religious leaders there, they were lined up right in front of that cross and they were tempting Jesus to come down from that cross. They would say, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. Now, Now, did Jesus have the power to step down from that cross? Certainly he did. Any moment Jesus could decide to step down from that cross. But yet he decided to remain on that cross for you and for me. Now think about it. When Jesus invites us as his followers to take up that cross voluntarily and follow him, when we, are die, when we experience that death to self, when we die to self and Christ is living in us and these words in Galatians have, are, 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 are practically our experience. It says, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, when we are in that experience, we, just like Jesus, at any moment can decide to step out of that experience because we have voluntarily taken up that cross. We can also voluntarily step down. Does that make sense? You see, the experience that we enter into with Jesus is an experience that we, by choice, must remain in. Now, to make this very practical, I think you, you, you all can relate to this. Uh, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you pray to God and you ask God to give you the power to live for him that day. You surrender your, yourself to him. In essence, what you are doing now is picking up that cross. You're saying, I don't want to live for myself, but Jesus, I want you to live your life in me. That's what it means to pick up that cross, dying to self so Christ can live in you. You do that in the morning, and now as you go about your day, you are voluntarily on that cross, and you are putting the love of God on display to those around you. You are basically saying, I don't want to live for myself. I want the life of Christ to be revealed in me. And everything seems to go very well until that temptation comes. Now, that temptation may be very different uh, between us. Maybe something that tempts you doesn't tempt me. Maybe something that tempts me doesn't tempt you. Uh, but there's this specific temptation, you know what it is, that gets to you. And at the moment that temptation hits, you have a choice to make. Will I remain on that cross? Will I remain in Christ? Will I, re will I answer as Christ would answer to that temptation? Or will I decide to step down from that cross and let the flesh take over. Let, and, and that's exactly the choice that each one of us has to make. It is a choice to remain on that cross or to step down from that cross. Now listen to this quotation here. It's taken from a marvelous book, Steps to Christ, page 47. And the writer of Steps to Christ, she says the following, She pictures it so powerfully, so beautifully, the experience that many of us go through. It says, many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? Isn't that the question we have? How can we make that surrender of ourselves to God? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You know what that's like? You say, oh, that one sin, it got me this time, but from now on, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, not going to do it again. But then you fall, fall back into that same sin. Your resolutions are like ropes of sand. 
And then it goes on to say, you cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. You know, we go through this. I, I believe that many of us can relate to these words. We make resolutions, we break those resolutions, we lose confidence in ourselves. We believe that God is now very distant from us and so that we cannot come to him. And so we find ourselves in this circle and, and it seems that we're trapped in it. But then this quotation here in Steps to Christ, it goes on to say, you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. Now listen very carefully. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to man and it is theirs to exercise. What is it? The power of choice, the power of the free will. It says you can choose to serve him. We can choose to remember to remain on that cross. That's a decision that we have the power to make. It goes on to say you can give your you can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with his. Now what a promise that is. When we find ourselves in the situation that we have let down God, we have let down those around us, we feel that our resolutions are like the ropes of sand. We have failed again and again, and we feel that God is very distant from us. At that moment, we need to exercise the will. We need to exercise the choices that we can make. We, we, we can exercise the power of choice. And we can decide to center ourselves upon him, to invite him into our experience and to basically step onto that cross, to get onto that cross. Now, the cross is something that uh, maybe sound, it doesn't really sound nice, you know, talking about the death to self. Why talk so much about death? But really the Bible reveals and the New Testament particularly reveals that there is no way to true life except we first experience a death. A death to self, which will, which will result in an abundant life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that's the experience that we are invited into. And Romans chapter 6, in a marvelous way, illustrates just that. The, 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 the example is given of baptism, and it is the experience of dying to self and entering into that relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans chapter 6, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there are two illustrations that are used. We have the first illustration of baptism or dying to self, but there's also a second illustration, and I would like to have a look at that one beginning in verse 15. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, the question that was asked in the beginning of the chapter is repeated here. It says, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. And then verse 16 says, but do, not, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? It talks about being a slave, either being a slave of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the first illustration is talking about a baptism, dying to self, and then the second illustration in Romans chapter 6 is talking about being a slave, either a slave of disobedience or a slave of obedience. Now, when we really understand, understand this illustration, when we really understand what it means to be a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness, we will, our, our allegiance, our loyalty will belong to that very one that we choose. And when that is Christ, we will be compelled and motivated to serve him in our lives. I heard this story not so long ago about an Englishman in the mid-1800s that traveled to California because he wanted to search for gold. And that's exactly what he did. He searched and searched and searched. And then that payday came and he found his gold.
And so he decided to, to cash in on that gold and to travel back to his family in England. And on his way back as he was traveling, he came to the city of New Orleans and he was going to take uh, the boat uh, further up north and then uh, to New York and then take the boat and, tra and travel all the way back to England where his family was waiting. And as he was in New Orleans, he had some spare hours and so he strolled across the marketplace in that city and he came upon this scene of a slave being sold. And um, the slave was standing on a platform and there were various men there in the crowd that were bidding to, uh, upon, upon this slave. It was a female slave, and they wanted to buy her. And so they were, they were shouting out prices, and the one would shout, and then the other would shout a little bit more, and then the next one would shout. And this Englishman finds himself in this very scene, and he's looking, and he's listening, and he's taking in the, that which, uh, what is happening right before his very eyes. Now, not only are these men bidding for this slave, but they're also telling each other and shouting out in the crowd what they're going to do with her once they have bought her. And this Englishman is absolutely disgusted by what he's hearing, and he just can't stand it any longer. Now, he is right there, and he knows that in his bag, he has quite a bit of money. And that is the money that he was going to bring back to England. But at that very moment, he is so compelled by the scene that he beholds that he bids higher than the last bidder. And he actually obtains the slave. The slave is bought by him. Now, the moment that he walks to the platform, and of course he has a plan in what he's going to do, the moment that he walks to the platform, the slave steps down. And the first thing that she does is she spits in his face. And he takes her by the hand and he walks through the streets of New Orleans and he comes to a little office and he walks into this office and he signs some papers and the slave is looking on and she's thinking, what is, what is, what is happening? And he signs some more papers and some more papers and some more papers and it takes a while and then they walk out of that office and he puts some papers in her hands and he says to her, you are free. You are free. I have paid the price. You are free. Now, of course, she couldn't imagine what she was hearing. And tears started running down her eyes. And she fell on her knees and she just couldn't believe it. And she takes hold of him and says, I can't believe it. You bought me to set me free. And she said, I am going to serve you for the rest of my life. My friends, when we understand the high price that has been paid in behalf of us, we will want to do nothing else but serve Jesus for the rest of our lives. When we understand that we are that slave that is being sold, we are slaves of sin, we are slaves of disobedience. And when you look there back in Romans chapter 5, it lists what comes through Adam and what comes through Christ. We understand that through Adam, we are, we, we are prone to disobedience. We are encaptured by sin. There is no way out. And Jesus Christ is that man that comes to this scene on the marketplace and he sees you and he sees me and he sees us being sold to the devil and yet he pays that price to set us free so that we can become his servants and though and we will become his servants by choice it will be a choice when we understand that he has paid that high price to set us free we will want nothing else but to serve him the rest of our lives you see, it's this kind of service that God wants. When we understand the high price that has been paid on Calvary, there is something that happens in our hearts. There's this longing that is awakened to become a slave of God. Now, that's a word slave that has negative connotations. But when you think about it, it is allegiance. It is loyalty. It is total commitment. It is belonging to someone else. And this is exactly what the Christian experience is about. We belong to Jesus. We belong to him with every single choice that we make. We decide to make him our Lord and Savior. And so we have these two illustrations there in Romans chapter 6, powerful illustrations. The first illustration of baptism, dying to self, resurrection as we come up out of the water, a new person. And this is not just something we experience only at baptism. It is a daily experience as we are crucified to self that Jesus may live in us. 
And then the second illustration that is used in Romans chapter 6 is the illustration of becoming a slave of righteousness, a slave of God instead of a slave of sin. Now, as we continue in Romans chapter 7, well, maybe before we go to Romans chapter 7, let's just read the last verses there in chapter 6. They're so encouraging. Look at verse 22 and 23. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22 and 23. It says, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gift that God wants to give to each one of us as we become his followers by choice, his slaves by choice. Now look at the third illustration that we have here in the book of Romans as we turn to, as we move on to chapter 7. And argue, arguably the chapter 7 of the book of Romans could, it's mentioned by many to be the most difficult one. As a matter of fact, it is not an easy chapter to understand. But I believe with the context of chapter 6, um, we can grasp it, you know. It's, it's not that hard after all, but we need to take it verse by verse. We need to look at, carefully at this illustration because Paul is a, is a deep theologian and um, his language at times gets a little complicated. So let's look at it together here in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And I just want to read verse 1 to verse 6. If you don't understand it the first time, then don't, you know, don't give up. We're going to take it verse by verse and see if we can grasp this together. Romans chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. Here's our next illustration. And Paul says the following, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the, woman, if, if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she, uh, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Now, the illustration that Paul is using here is the illustration of marriage. It's the illustration of marriage. Now, what he says is the law says that a man and woman are one flesh. They belong together as long as they live. That's the commitment they make to one another. Now, it is adultery for either one to be married, uh, for one to be married to another while the other is yet living. And so in the, in the illustration, that is made plain. If the, uh, if the woman would be married to someone else while her husband is still alive, that's adultery. But if the husband dies and she marries someone else, then she is not condemned by the law. Now, the law does not change. The law is the same, but the situation has changed, Right. Now, this is the illustration that Paul is giving us here in Romans chapter 7. Now, we have to, of course, understand here um, the, where we fit into this illustration. As a matter of fact, we have four subjects here. Follow along very carefully now. We have the law, we have the woman, we have the first husband, and we have the second husband. Now, uh, let's look at the application. You see, in this illustration, you and I, in our Christian experience, we are that woman. As a matter of fact, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this beautiful picture of the church of God being the bride of Christ. There's this beautiful picture of becoming one with Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Uh, the woman in the illustration of Romans chapter 7 is the believer. Now, the, she is married to the first husband, and when the first husband dies, then she can legitimately be married to the second husband. Now, if the, 
woman is the, is the believer, then who is the first husband and who is the second husband? Well, look at verse 4 again. I think verse 4 makes it very clear. It says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you, be, that you may be married to another, so that's talking about the second husband, to him, with capital H, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So who's the second husband? It's Jesus Christ, right? It's Jesus Christ. So we're, we're, we're getting closer now. The woman, the believer, the second husband, Jesus Christ. And of course, the believer wants to be married to Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's the whole picture of the gospel. That's the whole picture from Genesis to Revelation, that, that uh, oneness between Christ and his people, that oneness between the bridegroom and the bride. But what does the law say? The law says that you cannot be married to the second husband while the first husband is still alive. And so the only way in this illustration here in Romans chapter 7 for the woman to be married with the second husband is that the first husband, what has to happen to the first husband according to the illustration? It has to die, right? Well, then we have to find out who is the first husband that has to die. Well, let's go back to verse 4 and 5 here. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear the fruit of God. Verse 5, for when we were, that's past tense, so in other words, before we are unified with the second husband, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. So the first husband is self. The first husband is this uh, pride and self that lives in us and really in essence to be married to that, to be one with that is leading to death. And the only way to be made free from that is that self must die. So basically it's almost bringing us back to the illustration in Romans chapter 6 where it talks about the death to self. Isn't it powerful, this illustration in Romans chapter 7, Paul is basically saying that in order to be unified with Christ, in order to be married with the second husband, the first husband must die. And what is the first husband? Well, according to verse 5, the first husband, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, and the law, by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That's the first husband. It's self, and self must die so that we can be married to the second husband, Jesus Christ. A powerful illustration which shows what must happen in the Christian experience for us to be reconciled with Jesus Christ, for us to be reconciled with God. You see, if we try, if we in our Christian experience want to be married with the second husband, Jesus, without first having died to self, this is, this is not going to work. According to the illustration, it's the law does not even, it, it's an impossibility. Christ can only live in us. We can only become one with Christ when self has died. And so these three illustrations, Romans 6, the illustration of dying to self and the illustrations of becoming a slave to God, and then the illustration in Romans chapter 7 of the marriage to Christ, all these three illustrations show us practically how we can experience entering into this new family of God that we are invited into, becoming one with Him, and then receiving the gifts of heaven, grace, righteousness, obedience, eternal life. And each one of us can by choice enter into that experience. Just as we choose to remain on the cross, so we choose to become a slave of Jesus instead of a slave of sin. And so we choose to be married to Christ. We choose to have the Spirit of God work in our lives so that, so that self may be put to death and that we can experience the beauty of holiness. Now, as Romans chapter 7 continues, it explains that, it, it, it actually pictures the experience of a person that is going through this struggle, that realizes that they are married to self, they are, they are 
they want to be set free. They want, they want to be married to Christ, but they don't know how. Now, take notice of the words in this experience of how this is pictured. And I think that many of us can relate to this, um, uh, this description here in Romans chapter 7 and beginning in verse 18. Look at what it says. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. It says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So it's like a struggle's going on. It's like the, 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 you're in the first marriage of self and you want a divorce to take place so that you can be married to the second, to Christ. And so self must die. And this experience is here explained. You want to do what is good, but you can't because there's, this, there's a war going on. And that war, my friends, can only be solved. That war can only, self can only be defeated. When we ask Jesus and invite him into our experience, only he can do that. He can put self to death so that he can reign in us and we can be reconciled to him and that we can enter into that marriage, the bridegroom Christ being unified with the bride, the church, the believer. It's an experience that we're all invited to become part of. It's an experience that Romans chapter 8 describes. When you come to Romans chapter 8, It's so encouraging. There we read about this very experience of being united with Jesus. It's the experience of being married to Christ. Let's read some of that experience there in Romans chapter 8. Look at these first verses there in in Romans chapter 8. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, because the self has died, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, each of us is invited to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to to, to, to die to self. To walk in the Spirit means to become a slave of Christ. To walk in the Spirit means to be married to Jesus. To walk in the Spirit means to surrender our lives to Him so that He can do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Romans chapter 8 is is a beautiful chapter, probably my favorite chapter in the book of Romans. It describes this experience. It describes what it means to walk with Christ. If you just continue there and you go to verse 12, look look at what Paul says here. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it happens by the Spirit, my friends. By the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, and then we will experience the abundant life that God has in store for us. For as many, verse 14, as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the cry of the Christian, the cry to become one with God. Now, when Christ starts working in our lives, we still have a fallen nature. We still have a nature that tends towards evil, but Christ is now the controlling power in our lives. As long as we remain on that cross, Christ is that controlling power. He works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. That is the promise that He has given to us. In Romans chapter 8, if you, if you go down towards the end of the chapter, look at what it says in verse 31. 
A question is asked by Paul that, that is so fitting at, at a time like this. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? When considering all of this, looking at all that God has done in behalf of us, looking here at, at the teachings that Paul has outlined there in the book of Romans, considering all these things, the question is well in place. What shall we say to these things? And the answer is in, in place as well. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to be reminded on a daily basis, my friends, that God is for us. We are not in this struggle alone. In this struggle against sin, we, God is not somewhere in the corner of the universe now and then cheering us on. No, He's involved with us in these struggles. He knows what we are going to. We have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary that can feel with our infirmities, the Bible tells us, that was tempted like as we are tempted, that knows exactly what we are going through. And this is a Christ that can understand your struggles. When you struggle with certain temptations, when you struggle with certain sins, God is not somewhere far away, not understanding our situation. No, He knows what we're going through. Jesus is our high priest and we can come before Him and He will give you the strength that you need at the very moment that you need it most. He will intervene in your life for He has promised to do so. If God is for us, who can be against us? And, we, and when we read these chapters in the book of Romans, it seems like such a high call, and certainly it is a high call, but we must remind ourselves that we are not alone in this. When we talk about dying to self, it's not something we can do in, do in our own strength, but we can ask God, God, help me to experience that. Give me the power to remain on the cross. Give me the power to live for you and not to live for myself. God, help me to understand what it means that you have set me free. You see, we were slaves of sin. He has set us free. When we understand the high price that he has paid on behalf of us, that will, will just compel us to love him and serve him the rest of our lives. And when we understand that he has invited us into a marriage, he wants us to be uni united with himself. Jesus has proposed to his bride. He has proposed to you as the believer. He wants to become one with you. But first, before you become one with him, the first husband must die. And that first husband, that self, self must die so that we can be unified with Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the experience of walking not in the flesh, but walking in the spirit. And this is the invitation that is extended to every single Christian we are invited to step into this saving relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in the Spirit. Look at what it says here at the end of Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 37. It says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. There's only one thing, my friends, that can separate you from the love of God, and that is your own choice. You can decide to turn away from Him. But if you decide to turn to Him, if you decide to accept Him into your life, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You see, Hudson Taylor, he said at one point, he said, in the easiest position of life, He must give me His grace. And in the most difficult, His grace is sufficient. Isn't that so true for each one of us? In the easiest position of life, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult, his grace is sufficient. You see, it was Christ that walked across that marketplace. It was Christ that came upon a scene of a slave being sold. And you were that slave. You were that slave that was being sold. You are a slave to sin. You are a slave to the passions of the flesh. You are a slave to 
all the evil in this world, and yet Christ was willing to pay that price. He paid the price with his own very life to set us free. And the question is, when we come to an understanding, when we come to this awareness that Christ has paid the price to set us free, the question is, who are we going to serve? Who are we going to follow? In the light of being set free through the death of Jesus Christ, will we decide to follow him? Will we decide that he is now our Lord and Savior? If we make that decision, he will not let us down. He will breathe into our lives the Holy Spirit, and we will be able to enter into the experience of Romans chapter 8, the experience of no condemnation, the experience of walking in the Spirit, the experience of having God with us, the experience of knowing that there's nothing that can separate us from Him, only our own choice, but we have made the choice to belong to Him. And so I pray this evening that you will, be, that you will make that choice, that you will decide to make Christ your husband, your Lord, your Savior. Because when you make that decision and you surrender your life to Him, there will, a death will take place, and at times it is a painful experience. Self will die. The Spirit will do a work in us that we can't do for ourselves, but we will realize that out of that death, there's an abundant life that will flow out of that, a life in Christ, a life of putting on display the very character of God. How many of you would like to enter into that experience tonight? You say, yes, I want to enter into that death, death to self, so that I can live the abundant life with Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to give us just that experience. Father in heaven, we want to thank you tonight that we can come to you. We want to thank you for being with us. We want to thank you for the book of Romans and the teachings that are found in this book. Lord, there are teachings that come from your throne. There are teachings that your Holy Spirit has given through the Apostle Paul. Thank you so much, Lord, for revealing to us the plan that you have for each one of us. Lord, it is a plan that we want to experience. It is a plan that we want to enter into. Lord, we want to experience the death to self so that you can live in us. And Lord, there there, is, there are moments in our life that we know that we have let you down. And, let, and yet, Lord, we know that you will never let us down, that you're always there, and that we need not doubt that, Lord, that you want to invite us into that relationship. Father, help us to know how we can exercise the will, how we can make a decision and a choice for you. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of your Son, Thank you for the high price that has been paid for each one of us. Help us to understand that price that has been paid, Lord, that in turn it may motivate us to belong to you and only to you. Thank you so much, Lord, for the study we could have tonight. Thank you that like the thief on the cross, you will remember our faith. As we place our faith in you and you alone, you will remember that. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we rest in that assurance asking and praying this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.